You may have heard of the recent event concerning the artist named Banksy and how one of his paintings left everyone in the room completely and utterly flabbergasted. Banksy's painting titled Girl with Balloon was being auctioned off at Sotheby's and it ended up being purchased for 860,000 pounds or about 1.4 million dollars. Perhaps the price leaves you flabbergasted. But what happened next immediately after the proverbial going once, going twice sold left every person in that room totally flabbergasted. Banksy's painting, Girl with Balloon, was on the wall in the auction room, and as soon as the gavel hit, the painting began sliding out of the bottom of the frame. And as it slid out of the bottom of the frame, it passed through a shredder. Years ago, Banksy had built a shredder into the frame, and his plan all along was to have the painting shred seconds after it was auctioned. So as soon as the auction closed and someone paid over $1 million for it, Banksy triggered a button that caused the painting to start sliding out of the frame while it passed through the built-in shredder. But for some reason, halfway through, the shredder jammed. And what was left was a painting hanging in shreds and hanging halfway out of the frame. And what we now have is a brand new piece of art. (laughs) Banksy actually created a piece of art rather than destroyed one. And it is now, no doubt, worth more than $1.4 million. Now, in the art community, this was a very exciting event. The art world was absolutely flabbergasted when Girl with Balloon passed through the shredder. You can Google it. You can look it up. There's a video to watch on YouTube, Shred the Love, the director's cut. We're actually going to watch it here in just a second. And we're going to see Banksy prepping the frame. And you will see the utter shock of those at the Sotheby's auction as the painting shred before their eyes. These people are totally flabbergasted. But as we watch, I want you to notice one thing. There's a point where the auctioneer is standing before the painting and he says, We think it's fairly priced. Everybody has a chance. I want to live in a world where I have a chance to bid on a million-dollar painting and be able to pay for it. Actually, I don't want to live in that world because as you see some of the people in this video, they seem like rich, uppity, artsy people. They're all kind of drinking their champagne like Thurston Howell III off of Gilligan's Island. Love it, Joe. What do you think Banksy means about this painting? So let's watch it. Yeah, we've had a lot of interest on it, as you can imagine. It's, um, I think, by far the most um, asked about lot on the set. Yeah, so the artist uh, put the frame on as well. 
you get that quite often with things, you know, he quite likes the uh, romanticism of, you know, having the frame on a, you know, National Gallery-esque frame, you know. I think this is like a fair price. It's the fun of auctions, you know, everyone's got a chance. Okay, it's the Frank scene. Girl with balloon, ladies and gentlemen, standing in the back of the room. And I'm going to start getting in 100, 150, 200,000, Last chance at eight hundred and fifty thousand pounds. Eight sixty. Eight hundred and sixty thousand. Fair warning. Can I sell it now? At eight hundred and sixty thousand. Last chance. Bastien will be bidding and selling for eight hundred and sixty thousand. Thank you very much. Well, that's exactly the reaction that I'm aiming for today as we look at Mark's gospel. Advent is a time to be flabbergasted anew. The season of Advent is a time to be astounded once again that God loves sinners like us. Sinners like us that fight with each other as we get ready for church or fight on the way to church. Some of y'all did that this morning. Sinners like us that say mean things to and about others. Sinners like us who harbor envy and bitterness. Sinners like us who... Should I keep going? Advent is a time to be flabbergasted once again that God loves us with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. And it may seem strange to you that we are continuing in our series in Mark during Advent, but what better place to be during the season of Advent than to hear about Jesus' love for us, how he suffered how he died and how he came back from the dead, and to hear it again during Advent. So turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 15. And keep in mind who Mark is writing his gospel to. Mark is writing to persecuted believers who are living in Rome. And so Mark is writing to encourage a persecuted church, a church that is suffering for the gospel. 
So what Jesus undergoes in the last few chapters of Mark's gospel serves as a way to encourage these believers in Rome. Mark is reminding his audience that suffering precedes glory, that to belong to Jesus means that you will suffer for his name, that if you love Jesus with all of your heart, then people will hate you with all of their guts. That's part of what it means to follow Jesus as a disciple. Suffering in this life precedes the glory of eternal life. That's how it was for Jesus, and that's how it is for disciples of Jesus. And Mark will show us how Jesus suffered. Jesus was rejected by the uptight, spiritual, prideful, know-it-all religious leaders. And he was rejected by an elected official named Pilate. And he was rejected by the crowd. And he suffered at the hands of Roman soldiers when he was mocked and brutally whipped and beaten. But as we will see, as we make our way to the end of Mark, what appears as weakness... What appears as foolishness is actually the power of God. Even the cross is not the last word. There is resurrection. So Mark will end his gospel with resurrection power. But at this point in Mark's gospel, it seems hopeless. It seems like loss and weakness and suffering get the last word. But they don't. All that is happening here when Jesus suffers is all a part of the eternal plan of God. And this is why Jesus came, to suffer for sinners, to suffer for you because of your sin, because you fought on the way to church, and to suffer for me because of my sin so that we could come back home to God. And your response to that good news and my response should be, what a Savior. What a Savior. We should be flabbergasted that God would give His beloved Son to suffer and die in our place. We should be flabbergasted that God is as good and loving and kind and merciful to sinners as He says He is in the Bible. We should leave every church, leave church every week saying to other people, I'm just flabbergasted that he loves me and died for me. What a savior. And that's what I hope we all leave saying today. But to be able to say that, I have to show you Jesus once again from God's word. My job this morning is to thrill you with Christ and what he has done for you so that you leave here flabbergasted. So look at Mark chapter 15 and beginning at verse 1 and hear the word of the Lord. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. 
So Jesus is on trial again. Earlier, if you recall from several weeks ago, in the middle of the night, the Sanhedrin, which was the religious leaders of Israel, they met in the middle of the night and they found Jesus guilty of blasphemy because he claimed to be the Messiah. But now Jesus is on trial before Pilate. The religious leaders could not sentence Jesus to death, so they bring him to Pilate so that the Roman government can do their dirty work for them. Now, Mark's version is very condensed, and it's, very, it's packed tight, and the other gospel writers give us a lot more information of what's happening here, but this is in keeping with Mark's storytelling style. Mark's narrative pace is fast. Mark does not get bogged down in a lot of the details that the other gospel writers highlight. Mark's gospel is rapid fire, and he tells us here that Jesus is brought before Pilate, and Pilate asks Jesus if he is the king of the Jews, and Jesus replies with a simple yes. And then that's when the religious leaders start in. They start accusing Jesus of all kinds of things. But notice Jesus doesn't respond. He's quiet, and he's patient, and he is absolutely in control. And Pilate can't figure this out. Pilate is used to people being accused and then vigorously defending themselves. But Jesus is silent, just like the prophet Isaiah predicted in Isaiah 53. And so Pilate asks Jesus, are you not going to defend yourself? Do you hear what they're saying about you? Are you not going to defend yourself? But Jesus' lips are sealed. And Pilate is flabbergasted by this. He's never seen anything like this before. Pilate is flabbergasted that Jesus will not defend himself or get an attorney or use the court-appointed attorney that has been provided for him. Pilate is dumbfounded by all of this. Now, we know from the other Gospels that Pilate really has no desire to try this case. He doesn't find any fault in Jesus. He thinks Jesus is innocent. And so Pilate vacillates and tries to get out of it, but then... Pilate is reminded of this weird annual custom that they had where they would let a prisoner out of prison. And this is Pilate's ticket out of this situation that he doesn't want to be in. So look at verse 6 now. Now at the feast, Pilate used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered Jesus up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. And so Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. So Pilate knows that the religious leaders are just envious of Jesus. He knows that they don't have a case against him, but the crowd reminds Pilate of this weird custom where they release a prisoner during celebrations, and Pilate thinks, this is my way out. I'll offer Jesus to be released, and then I don't have to deal with this situation. 
Pilate had figured out that the religious leaders had no dirt on Jesus, and they were envious and jealous of him, and so Pilate offers to release Jesus. The the religious leaders stir up the crowd, and they cry out for the release of the prisoner named Barabbas. And so Pilate asks the crowd what he should do with Jesus, and the crowd responds that they should crucify him. But Pilate knows that Jesus is innocent, so he asks the crowd, why? What evil has this man done? But the crowd won't have it, and they kept shouting, crucify, crucify, crucify. And so Pilate agrees, and he releases Barabbas and sends Jesus off to be whipped, beaten, and then crucified. But I want you to notice something here. The crowd wanted Barabbas released. He was a murderer who was involved in in leading a revolt. And this is the man that the crowd calls to be released. We want you to release a murderer so there's a murderer roaming our streets. Think about it. They want to release an anti-government murdering disturber of the peace instead of releasing a rabbi who has done nothing but good in the world. And who do they choose? They choose the killer. But that's not the most flabbergasting thing about all this. What's so flabbergasting is the name of the killer who is getting off scot-free. Barabbas. The name Barabbas means the son of the father. And so the crowd cries out for the release of the son of the father. Let Barabbas, the son of the father, get off scot-free and crucify Jesus, the son of the father. But this was all a part of God's plan, even down to the name Barabbas. Barabbas, the son of the father, would walk away scot-free while Jesus the son of God the Father, would be condemned. Barabbas, the guilty, would be declared innocent. And Jesus, the innocent, would be declared guilty and put on death row where he would be beaten and then killed. Barabbas, the guilty son of the Father, would be set free. And Jesus, the innocent son of the Father, would die a brutal death for the sins of the world. This is the gospel. And when you hear this good news, the good news, did I say good news? <laughs> when you hear this good news, the appropriate response is always, what a savior. It doesn't matter how many times you hear the gospel story, the response should always be, what a savior. And when you understand what Jesus suffered even before the cross, you should be flabbergasted. Mark tells us in verse 15, so Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. When Mark tells us that Jesus was scourged, what he means is that Jesus was almost whipped to death, if you can imagine that. Can you imagine being whipped so much that it almost takes your life? That's exactly what Jesus endured. A Roman scourging was done with a whip that had several strands at the end, kind of like that Banksy painting. And each strand had pieces of bone and lead attached to the end. So the person that was being scourged would be stripped of their clothes, their hands would be tied to a post, and their back and their buttocks and their legs would be exposed. They were totally naked. And then the whipping would begin. 
And with each crack of the whip, the bone and the lead that was attached at the, each, at the end of each of those strands of the whip would violently cling to and then rip away flesh and muscle and tendon and tissue. Eusebius, an early church historian, describes people who experienced a Roman scourging this way. He says, they were torn by scourges down to deep-seated veins and arteries so that the hidden contents of the recesses of their bodies, their entrails and organs were exposed to sight. And the Jewish uh, historian Josephus also describes scourging in these similar terms. So the scourging that Pilate ordered left Jesus with bone and muscle and cartilage showing. But when Jesus was scourged, the question was no longer, are you the Messiah? That's what the religious leaders had asked earlier that night. Are you the Messiah? And the question was no longer, are you the king of the Jews? Which is what Pilate had just asked Jesus. The question now became, is that a human being? That was the question that you and I would have asked if we could see Jesus post-scourging. Is that a human being? Jesus was so severely disfigured after being whipped that he looked like a piece of raw meat. Tendons exposed, Blood everywhere, bone visible, coagulation, muscle, tissue, organs exposed. If you could see it, if you were there, you would have asked, is that really a human being? That can't be. What is that thing tied to that post? And the prophet Isaiah predicted some 700 years before that Jesus would be so marred and so mangled that he would be utterly unrecognizable. Isaiah 52, verses 14 and 15. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Isaiah says that people would be flabbergasted at the sight of the suffering Messiah and not just merely because of his physical appearance. I mean, that enough was alone to leave, uh, enough to leave someone astonished, that alone. I mean, it, there's raw meat, if you will, tendons exposed, blood everywhere, bone visible, coagulation, muscle, tissue, organs. That sight enough is, an, is enough to leave someone astonished and flabbergasted. But another reason why people are astonished is because of this question. Who in the world would come up with this plan to save humanity? Who in the world would come up with this plan to save humanity? The Son of God viciously beaten and ground to a pulp? The Son of the Father so marred that he wasn't even recognizable as a person? And this was even before the crucifixion. And this is why Paul says that the gospel is a stumbling block. 
1 Corinthians 1, 22 to 25. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Here's the reality, whether you want to admit it or not this morning, everyone's looking for something. Everyone in this room is looking for something. Everyone has their own self-salvation project going on. Some people try to be good enough. Some people wallow in shame and guilt. Some people think they don't need saving. And this is why the gospel is a stumbling block. Because people don't want to hear that they are sinners in desperate need of a Savior. And people don't want to hear that they don't have to do anything to be saved. They don't want to hear that Jesus paid it all. People are offended when you tell them that they are a sinner in desperate need of a Savior. And this Savior does not come riding on a white horse like a knight in shining armor. No, this Savior is beaten to a pulp. This Savior is brutally murdered through crucifixion. This Savior saves through his cross. And that's why Paul says that he preaches Christ crucified. Because it's the gospel that saves sinners. This is the message of this church. Christ crucified. This message will save a sinner from the coming wrath of God and it will encourage and free and liberate and bring joy to a believer. And this is why we preach Christ crucified here every week. I've said it time and time again. I want all of you walking out here every week saying, what a savior, not what a sermon. My goal in preaching every week is to leave you flabbergasted, not flabbergasted by my preaching, which is not that great if we're honest. I mean, have you heard Alistair beg? I'm surprised there are other preachers. I'm surprised people preach after they listen to Alistair Begg or Chuck Swindoll. My goal is to leave you astonished every single week that God loves you. That's it. Sam Alberry recently tweeted this. He said, Brother pastors who will be preaching tomorrow, thank you for your labors which may extend long into the night. Whatever the passage or topic, whatever your mood or that of your people, please thrill us with Christ. We need nothing else. That's my job every week, to thrill you with Christ. My goal on Sunday morning is to make you flabbergasted and to thrill you with Christ. And if I can thrill you with Christ, then you'll hate sin and you'll want to put it to death and you'll want to live to God's glory. All i got to do is thrill you with Christ. The rest will just happen naturally, organically. My goal is to leave you flabbergasted every week. Flabbergasted that the Son of God would go to these links to save you. And why did he suffer this way? Because he loves you. It sounds strange, but the repulsive, grotesque Savior hanging on that cross is the one who will cleanse you. The sickening stench of a tender Savior is what makes you clean. 
the coagulated blood sticking to sweaty, smelly, stinky human flesh is what washes away your sin. The one people stared at and asked, is that even human? Is the one who loved you and gave up his life for your sin. And that's why we preach Christ crucified. It's bloody. It's gross. It's nauseating. It's sickening. It will make your stomach churn, but it will save you. It's bloody, it's gross, it's nauseating, it's sickening. It'll make your stomach churn, but it will save you if you open the empty hands of faith. And that's why that cross is front and center in this church. Because we need a weekly reminder right in front of our faces to get in between our nose and our iPhone. We need something right in front of our faces to remind us that we are in the business of death. We need a weekly reminder that this whole thing is riding on Jesus and not on us. That it's all about his death for us. That heart, that cross should make your heart leap when you walk into this room every week. That cross should remind you that you, Christian, belong to Jesus. That you have been united in a death like his and therefore you will be united in a resurrection like his too. And so this sign, the cross, screams at us every time we walk in this sanctuary that we have been united with Jesus, that we are in union with him. We died with him when he died, and the curse of the law no longer hangs over us, and that we are free. The cross is the sign of our freedom. That cross screams out to us. We are a free people. And we are justified that we've been declared righteous by God and that our sins were dealt with at the cross. Our sins were dealt with finally and forever. Where? Right there. That we were judged at the cross and Jesus is never bringing our sins up again. Not even when we stand before him and see him in his final advent. He's never bringing our sins up again. They've been thrown into the bottom of the sea. Jesus is never going to go scuba diving for them again. And don't let anyone ever tell you that he will. You were clean and you were forgiven. We were judged at the cross when Jesus was judged. And whoever can look at the bloody, gruesome, grotesque cross and take it up as their own death, they are the ones who are then welcoming God's family, his forever family. But let me give you a warning this morning. The cross is offensive. That cross is offensive. And that why, it's why it needs to be front and center in this room. It needs to be where our eyes are drawn every week. But remember, it is offensive. We align ourselves with the brutal, bloody death of the Son of God on our behalf. And the message that we preach and cling to, the gospel, is very offensive. It's good news. Yes, it's good news but it's offensive. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, it's like the smell of a decomposed body to unbelievers. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to one a fragrance from death to death and to the other a fragrance from life to life. When you share the gospel with some people, they will not receive it as good news. 
they will receive it as if you handed them a decomposed arm or leg. They will not like it. Would you like someone to give you a smelly, disgusting, rotting piece of human flesh? No, you wouldn't. And that's how some people respond to the gospel. And that means that we will suffer for the sake of the gospel. Because it's death. It's the smell of death. The smell of decomposed bodies to some people. And so, if they hated Jesus, they'll hate us too. I've told you time and time again through the years, if you love Jesus with all of your heart, then people will hate you with all of their guts. And that's what Mark is driving home to his audience, these believers who are being persecuted, who are suffering. But here's why the gospel, which is good news, is offensive. Because it answers the question, why did Jesus have to die? It's good news, but it answers that question, which is offensive. Why in the world did Jesus have to die? That's why the gospel is offensive. And the answer to that question is offensive even to some church people. Understand this, Grace. This is how bad we are, how sinful we are, how offensive we are. It took the Son of God dying for us. It took the Son of the Father dying in our place. His life and death and resurrection is the only thing that could save us. That's how far gone we are. And so on the cross, Jesus comes and he says to us, it's my job, my mission to take away other people's guilt and make it all my own. That's what I came to do because I love guilty people. I love sinners. And if you only trust in my work, then I will take responsibility for your guilt and you will get my righteousness. Just like Barabbas, we're guilty and we get off scot-free. We walk out of prison and Jesus takes our place. That's why God accepts unacceptable people. That's why he welcomes dirty people and makes them clean. That's why he declares guilty people innocent. That's why he takes spiritual harlots, spiritual prostitutes, and he makes them queens. And if you can stomach the fact that you are a sinner and you desperately need a savior, then the gospel is good news. But it's a stumbling block to the world. They don't get it. Even some church people don't like it. As Robert Capon said, for no matter how much we give lip service to the notion of free grace and dying love, we do not like it. It is just too indiscriminate. It lets rotten sons and crooked tax farmers and common tarts into the kingdom and it thumbs its nose at really good people. And it does that gallingly for no more reason than the gospel's shabby exaltation of dumb trust over worthy works. The world thinks faith is just dumb trust. They don't understand. It's too easy. Trust? It's just dumb trust. It is. It's reasoned and enlightened and informed, but it seems dumb to them. In contrast to worthy works, in contrast to trying to earn our way to God, working our way up to God. And so the world seeks a ladder to climb up to God, but we're so messed up that we couldn't even make it up the first step on a ladder to God, and so God had to come down. Ladders don't save. 
You can't be saved by climbing up a ladder to God. But you can be saved by the Son of God, the Son of the Father, who came down from heaven and climbed up on a cross for you. That will save you. Having dumb trust in that. God opens the door to heaven to rotten sons and crooked tax farmers and common tarts and people who fight before and on the way to church if they come with the empty hands of faith. But if you try to go to God with any of your works, try to shine it up the best you can and present it to you, he'll snub his nose at you. You can't be good enough, no matter how hard you try. So God will snub his nose at your attempts to be good enough. The only way in, the only way to be welcomed into God's forever family is by looking to the bloody, grotesque, sickening, nauseating Savior and not turning away in disgust, but looking upon Him and worshiping. That's faith. Looking upon a disfigured Savior who looked like a piece of raw meat and worshiping. Tendons exposed, blood everywhere, bone visible, coagulation, muscle, tissue, strips of skin hanging off his body like a Banksy painting, shredded to pieces, looking at him and worshiping. Looking at him and saying, is that really a human being? That can't be. What is that thing on the cross? And then saying, That's my Savior, my treasure, the one my soul loves. The eyes of faith look upon a bloody, crucified Savior. And what happens? Worship. Let's close with something Preston Sprinkle said. The book of Hebrews tells us that it was for the joy that was set before him that Jesus endured the cross the joy of being reconciled and reunited with his image-bearing masterpieces turned enemies who deserve wrath, not forgiveness, justice, not grace. Joy for you is what kept Jesus going. Through every slash of the whip, every pound of the nail, every agonizing breath, every shameful insult hurled from the mouths of his beloved enemies, It was for Jesus' stubborn delight set before him that he endured the cross. The ingenuity of the Persians, the barbaric fine-tuning of the Romans, the wood, spikes, hammers, splinters, and crown of thorns picked from a garden are all woven into the tapestry of grace as the only fitting way to capture God's love for his image bearers. This is why you can't make God love you. God loves you because of God. God acted in Jesus out of his own freedom to descend into a feeding trough and spread his arms across a splintery beam of wood. It was Jesus' declaration, it is finished, that made God love you. And when Jesus declared, it is finished, he meant it. God's punishment for our sin was paid for, permanently settled, finished 100%. And if you have responded in faith to God's free pardon through Jesus, then God will never punish you for your sin. It's finished. No more. If you screw up today or tomorrow, which you will, it's already been paid for through Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Paul said. None. 
God will not and cannot condemn you after he has already condemned Jesus for you. It's impossible. God will never be angry with you since his anger was poured out on Jesus. All of it, 100%. This point needs to soak into your bones because we have a natural desire to cover our shame with guilt instead of grace. Guilt drags along behind us like a ball and chain, even though God has shattered the chain with a cross. And so your response to all of this grace and my response should not be, we got to do more. We just, we got we to try harder. Put, put, put more effort. We got to do this. No. And our response should not be, I can be good enough to earn his love. Just give me a shot. You don't know what I can do. Give me a shot. No. Your response and my response should simply be, what a Savior. What a Savior. What a Savior. Let's pray. Father, what a Savior. Your Son, Jesus, who never sinned, never got into an argument sinfully with his brothers and sisters on the way to the synagogue or on the way to the temple. Never sinned, ever. And in contrast to that, Father, look at our lives. What a mess. And yet you are so loving and so kind and so merciful and gracious and gentle that you are willing to trade your son's perfect life for our mess and junk, embarrassing things that we think in our heads that nobody else knows about. And Jesus said, I'll be guilty for that. You get pure thoughts. It's amazing. And so we can just say, what a savior. And now may we go and love other people because you have loved us and our worst. Help us to love other people at their worst and help us to share this good news with our family members and coworkers and neighbors and people that we interact wherever you have placed us. Even though it's offensive, God, help us to share this good news and draw sinners by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.